It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be discussing the latest round of Brexit votes in the House of Commons, Theresa May's nod towards delaying exit day, plus we'll also be discussing Labour's sudden lurch towards supporting a second referendum and its continued problems with tackling anti-Semitism. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, James Blitz, our writer editor, chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, and deputy opinion editor, Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then why not subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning? Or you could even leave us a nice review. It's always a big week in Brexit, but this one felt as if some fundamentals might actually be changing. After much huffing and puffing, the Remainers in Theresa May's government did not resign, but they succeeded in pushing the Prime Minister into saying she would consider delaying exit day beyond March 29 instead of leaving without a deal. Once again, the Prime Minister has kicked the can down the road and bought herself two more weeks for those crucial talks with Brussels, with the crunch point now pushed to March March the 12th, then perhaps matters might finally come to a head. So George Parker, this week was another round of Brexit votes where the Prime Minister put down a motion, MPs debated it, and it was very much business as usual. But the key thing was that the ministers didn't resign because last Saturday we had that big op-ed from Greg Clark, Amber Rudd and David Gork saying, we cannot countenance no deal, you have to delay Brexit. That was then followed by another op-ed by Claire Perry, Richard and Harrington, which said similar things. And finally, Theresa May acknowledged what was reality, which is that she was probably going to have to delay Brexit. Yes, she acknowledged the reality of the parliamentary arithmetic, which was that Parliament was not prepared to accept a no deal exit full stop. This moment, we've talked about this many times on your podcast, Seb, that was always going to come where the Eurosceptics and the Conservative Party would be confronted with the truth that a pro-European Parliament was never going to allow this to happen. Matters were brought to a head, as you say, by the prospect of a dozen or more pro-European ministers resigning. And in the end, the Prime Minister decided that was something she couldn't afford to do either to see such a large number of resignations, but also the fact she'd have the resignations and then she'd lose the vote. So she bowed to reality. She accepted that Brexit may have to be delayed. Now, that's obviously humiliating for her because she said at least 100 times in the House of Commons this was not going to happen. We were going to leave on March the 29th. But in a funny sort of way, of course, it works to her advantage because once you take no deal off the table, which I think the events of this week has categorically done, you confront the pro-Brexit European research group with the truth, which is, if you don't back the deal, there's a danger that Brexit is delayed and then possibly cancelled. So I'm going to be a little bit pedantic here and make the point that I think I've made a couple of times this week, that there is only one way to actually take no deal off the table, which is to revoke Article 50, that what Mrs May has sort of said this week is, we will 
push no deal back potentially towards the end of June because the Prime Minister in a very testy statement in the Commons mm. said I will only consider a short and limited delay and said that she wouldn't countenance a delay beyond the end of June. Now I have no idea if she might be forced into that because this motion will be amendable and MPs mm. may say well actually we want a very long delay but isn't there a risk George that by what she's done this week she's just moved the cliff edge from March to June and we could still have a no deal Brexit in June? Well that's certainly a possibility. I mean the first thing to say is it's not a unilateral decision as you say of Theresa May to decide how long this extension if it happens would be because Parliament as you rightly say could amend the motion and demand a longer extension and indeed the EU which has to approve this by unanimity could demand a much longer extension the talk of a year or two longer so that's the first thing to say the second thing yes there is a danger the cliff edge is moved a bit further down the road by two or three months but I think the fact is that there are a sufficient number of people on the right of the Conservative Party who recognise that once you start the process of extending Article 50 and delaying Brexit, you open up a whole range of unsettling possibilities, including the possibility of an election or a second referendum, or, as Philip Hammond was suggesting in the Cabinet, that Theresa May would have to change tack completely and build a different coalition, code for a softer Brexit. Emmanuel Macron in Paris said exactly the same thing today. If there's an extension, it's got to be for a different strategy. So there are a whole range of things. Now, you're right that everyone could just hold off and we could be going through this whole thing again in June. But my sense is that there are a lot of people in the European Research Group who would actually rather get this thing settled now rather than wait for another three months. James Blitz, what happened with the actual vote? The Prime Minister announced this in a statement to the House that she understood the will of MPs, that they were unhappy with no deal and that she was going to kick things forward to the 12th of March. Now, this week is very crucial because there was the Cooper Bowes plan, which is now the Cooper Letwin plan, which was to give the House of Commons control of the process. And the Prime Minister obviously didn't want that to happen because it would mean that she would not be able to decide what would come out of Brexit from that. So she essentially took on mass the Letwin Cooper plan, but without handing controls to MPs. And that passed with some rebels. Yes, obviously, it was an extremely complicated day. And as ever with these votes, But what basically happened was this. Mrs May had said in the House of Commons to see off this Cooper-Letwin plan that she would put in place these three dates, i.e. a vote on the deal on the 12th of March. If that doesn't pass, then there would be a vote on no deal on the 13th. If that didn't pass, then there would be a vote on extension on the 14th. And what she basically then did, perhaps surprisingly for some MPs, was actually have a proper vote in the Commons on the night, it was Tuesday night, to actually put this into play. Now, this infuriated clearly a lot of MPs in the European Research Group, and 20 of them voted against the motion that was put down, but 80 of them abstained. And I think, going on from what George has said, that was an important signal about how things are shaking up among the hard Brexiters now, the so-called European Research Group, because I think a lot of attention is now focusing on the possibility that on the 12th of March they might actually do a vault fast. You've seen a lot of different things happening, not just that vote. George also did an interview with Jacob Rees-Mogg in which there was a strong softening of language in terms of what Mrs May needs to bring back from Brussels. You've had the Eurosceptic papers, the Daily Mail and the Sun, really coming out firmly this week and saying MPs have got to back... May's deal, enough is enough. And the other thing, of course, is that now that Jeremy Corbyn has come out firmly and said that he is committed to a second referendum, that's another problem for the European Research Group. They know that if they don't back May on the 12th of March, we're going into this no man's land, and there's a real possibility of a second referendum coming out. So in my view, 
the main focus now is whether she's going to squeak it through on the 12th of March. So it does actually seem like it's been a pretty good week for the Prime Minister, George, for the dynamics of... Because she's always wanted to narrow this to the question of my deal or no Brexit. Because if you have no deal in the calculation, that's very problematic because we know there are Tory MPs who are very happy with no deal. Mm. So once that's taken off the table, as much as one can possibly do that, it makes it easier for her. Now, Downing Street have said there will be another meaningful vote. This is the legal mechanism to start approving a deal by the 12th of March. Now, you could read that in Theresa May parlance as the 12th of March, but there's also been some chattering around that it could be as soon as next week. And I guess this is all going to depend on what Jeffrey Cox can bring back from Brussels. What what have you been hearing on that front? Well, you're right. Jeffrey Cox has um, been in Brussels trying to negotiate in two specific areas. One is to find a way of putting a time limit on the famous Irish backstop. And the other one is to seek a unilateral exit mechanism from the backstop. I'm told by people in Brussels that, and Alex Barker, our correspondent there, has made this point, that it feels like the idea of a unilateral exit mechanism, first of all, won't fly in Brussels, and secondly, Theresa May now recognises that and has dropped it. So the focus really is in finding some kind of legal language which will give an assurance that the backstop is temporary and there will be some kind of end date. And whether there's language about best endeavours to put a trade agreement in place by a certain date, whatever, expanding on the kind of language already in the withdrawal treaty remains to be seen. Theresa May said that progress had gone well this week and that talks were progressing well. On the other hand, you speak to people very senior in the government who say at the moment there's still a significant gap between what Brussels is prepared to offer and what the ERG and very importantly the Democratic Unionist Party are prepared to accept. So it's still some way to go. You're right, there are rumours flying around that there may be some progress and the, the Prime Minister will spring a vote on the House of Commons as early as next week. Downing Street is absolutely categoric that's not going to happen. At the lobby briefing on Friday, they were again warning that, you know, don't know where this is coming from, very much suggesting the vote itself will be on the 12th of March, which is the deadline the Prime Minister set herself. So we'll wait and see about that. You know, things can move very quickly, as we know, and people know the parameters of what's being talked about. Just one thing very quickly on the DUP. I think it's really significant to keep an eye on them because if the government and Geoffrey Cox can come up with something which guarantees the DUP satisfaction that the backstop is temporary and the DUP fold, then I'm told by senior ERG figures that virtually all of the ERG people will come on board at the same time. And at that point, the game changes completely. There's that great quote this week, which is that we can't be more unionists than the unionists in this sense. And I think that is very true. But She's still got to provide a ladder for them to climb down. So I think, you know, it's all going to be about meeting those expectations. And as you were saying before, James, about those senior conservatives within the ERG, some of them are obviously shifting their calculations. And if they do believe that no deal Brexit's not going to happen, then they face the choice of do we risk no Brexit or do we go for Theresa May's Brexit? But there's always going to be a rump that will never go on side. And I think we saw a bit of a hint of that in the vote this week, that there were the 20 ERG MPs who voted against the government, not just the ones who abstained. And when you looked at that list of people, it struck me as that is the very hardcore of the ERG who you will never get back on board. And then, of course, the conversation that flips back over to the Labour benches and which of those will be willing to abstain or even possibly vote for Mrs May's deal. Yes, obviously it does. I mean, Mrs May is going to need some Labour support. I think there's no real doubt about that. And People talk about the numbers being about 20, 25, 30 Labour MPs who would come on board. But I think my own sense of it is that what we're coming up to, assuming it is the 12th of March, is something which is pretty definitive because the fact that she's now put in place this new mechanism afterwards, 
which is either to have an extension or to rule out no deal, means that that vote on the 12th of March is really quite definitive. She can't come out of that vote and then say, well, I'll go back and have a bit more of a negotiation or try and lengthen things out. If she loses that, we really do move into something more of a no-man's land. And I think from the point of view of people who want a people's vote or a second referendum, that's the important moment. I mean, there is this so-called Kyle Wilson amendment that's been put down, which could well be voted on on the 12th of March, which calls for a second referendum on Mrs May's deal if it passes. In other words, backing Mrs May's deal, but saying there should be a second referendum. That might lose. But if Mrs May then goes on to lose the substantive vote, I do think it would be possible then for the Commons more generally to come back and look at whether to push through a second referendum then. I think a lot of people who want a people's vote say it's at that moment that the argument for a second referendum... When everything else is off the table. That really matures, and that's what they're looking for, and that's what the ERG really has to be worried about. But George, one Conservative MP I spoke to this, we put forward this idea of we actually have two more meaningful Mm. votes, this idea that Theresa May will have this vote on the 12th, and by that point... The government and Geoffrey Cox will have announced something that they're getting towards to give MPs something they can back. And Miss May might get a lot closer. Maybe she does get the DUP back on board, get some toys, but it still misses by a significant margin. Then there's two final cards left to play. One is the 21st summit of EU leaders, which in theory is the UK's last summit as an EU member. And if there is going to be a final codicil, an amendment, an agreement, it will come out of that summit. And then the second card to play is Mrs May herself. We've heard a lot this week about Conservative MPs saying, well, look, if she's announces she's going to go very soon after Brexit, then I will just get this deal just to get this thing through. Because a lot of Conservatives have concerns that she will try and hang on and will get a bounce from the deal and use that to stay on well into 2020 or 2021, which they really don't want to happen. What do you think about the prospect of both of those? Well, I think that the idea of multiple meaningful votes is certainly something people are talking about, and I think it's possible. There's a variant of this, which is that you have a meaningful vote next week, and then you come back with a second, even more meaningful vote. The most meaningful. In other words, you had a couple of votes before March the 12th. That's one theory that's knocking around. There's another one, which you mentioned, is that the real negotiation happens at the March the 21st European Council. The only flaw in that argument, of course, is that by that point... If Parliament's rejected Theresa May's deal, it's probably also voted to extend Article 50. So at that point, the March the 21st Council becomes just another milestone in the never-ending saga. So I think multiple meaningful votes is a possibility. You're right about this growing chatter about the fact, well, we'll come on board if Theresa May signals she's stepping down, which tells you a little bit about the principles of some of the people who are making these threats. You know, I thought it was all about the Irish backstop, not about the Prime Minister's own future. They clearly want to get Theresa May out of the way. I'm talking here about the Eurosceptic wing of the Conservative Party who think they're going to win the subsequent leadership contest because they want to take control of the second phase of the negotiations. So they will argue that Theresa May's deal is far from optimal, but they've grudgingly let it go through. But then they're going to take over and then they're going to deliver a proper true Brexit in the second phase. Someone like Boris Johnson or Dominic Raab who will go to Brussels and tell them what's what and really do a proper negotiation. Now, that is a scenario. Downing Street say that Theresa May's got no intention of offering her resignation on a plate to the Eurosceptics, especially as if things seem to be moving slightly in her direction already at the moment. And I think there's a sort of moderate group in the Conservative Party who still fear what will happen if Theresa May is removed and the real possibility that the party then moves off to the right. And we have another round of Brexit trauma with the Eurosceptics going to war with Brussels and this whole thing dragging on for another couple of years. And I just will say one final thing. 
The reason Theresa May is still there is because in the past, and it may no longer hold, we don't know, the party has feared what happens when you remove her. So when she blew the general election in 2017, they pleaded with her to stay on. When there was the vote of confidence in her leadership in December, again, she won because people feared what happens next. And I don't see that that fundamental calculation has changed. And, you know, if I was to make any prediction, I'd say that Theresa May, if she somehow pulls this out of the bag, she's probably got a bit more fuel in the tank. I would agree with that. And I think one thing I've heard this week has been a lot of chatter around the various contenders for the leadership who are starting to put together teams, reaching out to MPs. So they clearly think something is going to happen in the next six months. But as you said, George, that might be more out of a desire than anything else. James Biss, very finally, a quick point from you here about timing of all this, because we've long passed the point of which we could now get all the Brexit legislation through and leave on the 29th of March. So even if she manages to win the meaningful vote, isn't it a case you would have some kind of technical extension in that basis to get through all the bills and all the statutory instruments to require us to leave smoothly with a legal basis in that? Or could it still just about be rushed through, do you think? So really, what I'm saying is, is there any prospect at all of us leaving on the 29th? I wouldn't completely exclude it. I mean, I think there is a school of thought that says if she wins the meaningful vote, we assume on the 12th of March, then actually it's in her interests to really try and push through the withdrawal agreement bill and other legislation as quickly as possible on that 29th of March deadline. The comparison that's often made is what happened with John Major after he signed the Maastricht Treaty in uh, 1992, because what happened then was he began a long series of implementation legislation in the House of Commons, and actually that got completely wound up. It would have been far better if he'd gone for a straight vote on what he'd done right at the start. That's an argument that's made. However, it is also true that the volume of legislation that has to go through is enormous. For example, the Withdrawal Agreement Bill has to implement the... Irish backstop in UK law. And it's very unlikely that MPs are just going to allow that to go through quickly. But I wouldn't completely exclude March 29th if she wins, as I think she might, on the 12th of March. For Labour, it was the same old two topics dominating the week, where the party would back a second referendum as it struggled to try and deal with claims that anti-Semitism is rife within the party. Jeremy Corbyn surprised his MPs on Monday by finally announcing that if their amendment failed to pass in the latest round of Brexit votes, the party would finally and suddenly swing behind, putting Brexit back to the country in another plebiscite. But will it ever actually happen? Meanwhile, its troubles with anti-Semitism rolled on as the Corbynite MP Chris Williamson was suspended for some very harsh comments he made during a Labour Party meeting in Sheffield. Jim Picard, let's begin with the second referendum question. Mr Corbyn, as we all know, is a long-term Eurosceptic and has been very reluctant to back a second referendum. He's attacked a Tory Brexit, in quote marks, but has been very careful to not say we should put this back to the people. And in fact, the day after the Brexit vote called for Article 50 to be triggered immediately. But within his shadow cabinet, he's got two very notable people who feel differently. They've been waging a long campaign to try and get him to change his mind. Have they been successful? So I think when you say that the two shadow cabinet figures you're talking about, Keir Starmer, who most definitely has been waging this kind of below the radar campaign for nearly a year to push the leadership into supporting a second referendum. I think the second person you're possibly referring to is John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, who is a late convert to this. Bear in mind, back in the autumn conference last year, John McDonnell was asked what this referendum 
which at the time, remember, was only an option as part of a very convoluted conference policy that was decided there. He was asked would remain be one of the options and he said no. It would only be a choice of leave options. So he's been on a bit of a journey born of pragmatism over the last six months. I think we shouldn't overlook either a couple of female senior shadow cabinet members, Emily Thornbury, who's been on a similar journey to McDonald's six months ago. She didn't want it. Now she does. And Diane Abbott, who, don't forget, not only shadow home secretary, but also one of Corbyn's closest political allies for decades. And she has been behind the scenes pushing quite hard for this. And on the other side of the equation, as I think a lot of people know, you had a lot of Corbyn's closest aides, Seamus Milne, his head of strategy and communications, Carrie Murphy, the chief of staff, Andrew Murray, a former communist who advises him in his office, and Len McCluskey, head of Unite the Union. And they, along with most of the rest of the shadow cabinet, have been sort of trying to hold the line and not let this happen. But it finally did on Monday. So what exactly did happen then? Why was it successful? Because you mentioned that whole rostrum of people who were against the second referendum within Labour. And those are some very powerful people with regards particularly to Seamus Milne and Carrie Murphy in Corbyn's office, who are very influential in the leaders' thinking. They've constantly said we can't have a second referendum it would betray our voters and in fact working class voters might do quite well out of Brexit is something that I know that they've been heard to say but what finally made them change to fall in line with the view of primarily Sir Keir but also John McDonnell and Diane Abbott and the other people who have changed their minds? So I think the other factor we haven't mentioned is momentum we haven't talked about the grassroots and how various polls of Labour membership have pointed to 80 or 90% of Labour members would love to overturn Brexit. And the number of those wanting a second referendum is less than that, because a lot of them are very loyal to Jeremy Corbyn's point of view. But the sort of drumbeat coming from the grassroots, coming from momentum, and senior figures in momentum, including John Landsman, the founder, Laura Parker, the chief executive, they've both been quite keen on the second referendum. And then one thing that I've picked up this week is that Corbyn has sort of been persuaded actually not as suddenly as people might think and he commissioned Andrew Fisher the head of policy to do a paper last year looking at if Britain stayed in the EU could Labour's nationalisation programme still happen and Andrew Fisher put together this pamphlet which was circulated amongst the shadow cabinet saying actually we could still nationalise the water industry the railway industry and all the rest of it so Corbyn was still sitting on the fence a bit, but it was those people around him, like Seamus Milne and Carrie Murphy, who were holding on until the bitter end. And then, of course, the final crack appeared a week ago when the independent group broke off. And then the case for holding things together, party management became overwhelming. I think that's absolutely crucial. I think really Jim's quite right to talk about this long process. It's almost been kind of geological, (laughs) chipping away at the Labour position to try and get it to this moment. But really, the costs of not backing a second referendum, I think, just started to become too high when calculated against the costs of trying to protect the MPs in those leave seats who feel so strongly that Labour should stick by Brexit and should do Brexit. So I think the Labour Party's been quite right to be aware that it's been walking a tightrope on the Brexit issue ever since the referendum. But the costs of not moving towards a second referendum position just became too high for them at this moment. I think also partly because there's been a lot of energetic myth-busting of what goes on in those leave seats. You know, quite a lot of sophologists have finally managed to make the point that even in leave seats held by the Labour Party, 
the Labour voters are overwhelmingly Remainers. So I think a lot of these things on a drip, drip, drip level have started to make an impact. The thing that struck me this week, Miranda, is the power of the independent group has had within Westminster because this thing's existed only for a couple of weeks, has a dozen or so members. And the main reason the Labour people left the Labour Party was because they felt they had no influence left within the Labour Party. The leadership wasn't interested in their views on anti-Semitism or on Brexit, and they felt that all their leverage had gone, we therefore had to break away. But on the two key issues this week, the second referendum, the clear reason that Corbyn changed his mind was the threat of more MPs leaving the party. And the second issue, of course, was Chris Williamson, who was the most Corbynite of Corbynite MPs, who was videoed undercover saying the party had overplayed the issue and that they shouldn't be apologising for it. And he was, after a bit of ups and downs, was actually suspended. And I don't think that would have happened if the independent group hadn't existed. Quite right. And I think, in a way, the sort of high drama of last week, the formation of this new parliamentary group, finally what we've thought might have happened for a long time, actually occurring and a walkout of Labour MPs. In a sense, this week, the drama is what difference that has actually made already to uh, various political calculations. And it's really remarkable, I think, the long-term despair of a lot of people inside the Labour Party on these two twin issues. Labour's stance on Brexit and their absolute acceptance of anti-Semitism within the party. And they've been forced to act on both. And I think it's very remarkable that even those inside Labour who have argued strongly against more MPs leaving to join this group have actually said fair play to the Tigs. They've changed the political weather on two key issues. On the Chris Williamson issue, I think clearly from a sort of moral point of view, It's fantastic that the leader's office was forced to act against him. But I would also hope that there was a stronger general message, which was that if there was any cynicism and careerism to the way that Chris Williamson has been behaving in terms of protecting anti-Semites, that can't work now. You know, if you change the atmosphere and if you change the line of what's acceptable and what isn't, you do force a lot more people to behave properly. It could be a turning point, but the problem is there's a worldview there in Corbyn's office which does find conspiracy theories that slide over into anti-Zionism, then into anti-Semitism. And if you're going to really root that out of the Labour Party, it's a huge job now. On the Chris Williamson thing, Jim, when these comments first came out, he gave an apology that said that he still felt that Labour didn't have a problem with anti-Semitism, but he was sorry for what he said. And then the pressure just started mounting up on that day with Tom Watson and Ed Miliband both coming out and saying he needs to have the whip removed. But there was some sense there was a pushback from Corbyn's office not to do this but then eventually they relented yeah and the um, Chris Williamson apology was a bit of a half apology he talked about he didn't actually think there were many cases of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party which is very much in contrast to what John Landsman the Jewish founder of Momentum said on the radio last week when he said there were obviously a minority but hundreds and hundreds of these people and thousands of incidents what What's quite interesting watching the Chris Williamson repercussions this week is people are sharing clips of the leadership campaign for Jeremy Corbyn in 2016. And what was very interesting back then is that they were doing videos basically saying the anti-Semitism accusations were pretty much made up and it was a, a sort of desperate last resort from the MSM and from Blairite MPs because they had nothing else to throw at Corbyn. 
They're obviously changing their tune now and there was a Momentum video put out yesterday trying to teach people what is anti-Semitism, who are the Rothschilds, is it true that they own 80% of the world's riches? Obviously not. I mean, it's kind of shocking to me that people have to be explained this stuff, but you can give Momentum credit for at least trying to do this. But should they have been doing it two or three years ago? Yeah. And when you look at Chris Williamson's followers and supporters and how they've reacted to this week's events, there's an incredible sense of them rallying behind him, seeing him as being wronged and accusing Tom Watson of being the witch finder general who is weaponizing this issue. And the more they hear this criticism of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, the more angry and self-righteous they get because they don't think that they are. Well, you're right. And also, Tom Watson has described this now as a battle for the soul of the Labour Party. And he's really right to do so. And that's because they don't just need to deal with Chris Williamson, the person on the platform making those remarks. They also need to deal with the fact that everyone in the room cheered. What do you do once it's in the mainstream of your political organisation? Just to talk about the role of Tom Watson for a moment, Jim, because he's deputy leader of the Labour Party, has his own mandate from the membership and has been very keen to insist on that. Ever since the Tiggers broke away, Tom Watson has seems to be on what some sort of his almost kamikaze mission to go outside of the Labour Party because he's become incredibly critical of Jeremy Corbyn and on every issue has just distanced himself further and further from the leadership here. And I just wonder, is he on his way out here? What is he trying to achieve? Because given the events of the past couple of weeks, had we been in normal times, Jeremy Corbyn would have probably had had to resign but obviously he's not going anywhere we know that now so what's Tom Watson up to? Well so Tom Watson has been politically dormant I think in many ways for a couple of years and if you go back to the Labour conference in Brighton of late 2017 there was that amazing moment where he gave a big speech sucking up to Corbyn and saying that he loved the whole oh Jeremy Corbyn chant and he started trying to sing it and he was met with this excruciating silence in the hall and he looked like such a kind of neutered character it was, it was a real symbol of how the Corbynistas had total control of the Labour Party and yet he seems to have seen in the events of recent weeks an opportunity to flex those muscles and don't forget that he is known as a very canny political operator who understands the machinery of the Labour Party so even though he'd kind of been outfoxed or outnumbered by the Corbynistas, you know, there's a reminder in recent days that, that there is that potency there. And I, I think what's changed the situation in terms of the independent group is that in the past, if you had an unhappy Labour MP who was fed up with being abused by local members or was really unhappy about the Brexit stance, they only had a couple of options, which is they could stay stum or they could leave and become an independent or they could sort of fantasise about creating a new centre-ground party. And none of them wanted to join the Lib Dems because they see the Lib Dems as a busted flush. Now, they do have an option, which is they can stay stum, or they can just go and join TIG. And that's really changed the dynamic. And I, for one, don't believe these rumours that there might have been 70 Labour MPs prepared to walk out last week, perhaps marshalled by Tom Watson, perhaps not. But the fact that it's a possibility does give him some power it's probably best not to overemphasize that power and this thing that he floated a week ago that he was going to set up a parallel policy operation we heard that two years ago and it didn't really amount to anything i'm not sure that's going anywhere but the dynamic has certainly changed and add that into corbyn folding on brexit it's just you know corbyn's 100 dominance not looking quite as strong and just briefly on that is there any sense of more labor mps joining the tig in the near future 
So the three individuals that the leadership were worried about were Margaret Hodge, who's been very vocal on the issue of anti-Semitism, the MP for Barking. She has apparently done an op-ed somewhere saying she's not going to leave. The other two figures that they're worried about are Louise Elman, who's an MP up in Liverpool, who's had real struggles with her local members. And the other is Siobhan McDonough, who is a very, very close ally of Joan Ryan, who is a member of the TIG. And, and for the last 15 years or so, they've done everything in lockstep. And it's kind of surprising that she hasn't left. Let's see what happens there. I mean, I think it's gone quiet for now. But I think Louise Elman actually has said she's not going. She said she's going to stay. So it's a kind of dribbled out of action for now. And finally, Miranda, just to look back to the second referendum question briefly. So this is what Labour's now said. They put forward their amendment to the latest round of Brexit votes on Wednesday. And that amendment was defeated. And Sakia Starmer came out and said, right, we are now going to rally straight behind a second referendum. But there is this sort of cynical calculation that might be at work in Mr Corbyn's mind, which is that the numbers still aren't there in Parliament, even if you got the Labour rebellion down to 20 MPs, which would be a big effort because there's a lot more you can just start counting them who don't want a second referendum, there's not enough TIG or Tories to counter them. So at that point, is Mr Corbyn just doing this, do you think, just to say he's done it, but actually doesn't really everything it's going to happen? Well, it makes you think that they could have made this move earlier, actually, because it's politically safe. They can have the credit from backing a second referendum without it ever coming to pass. I think that that estimate of the number of Labour MPs that would vote against a second referendum is quite low. I think there might be quite a lot more than that. And there's also, I think, a lot of wishful thinking that the moderate voices on the Tory side, the Nick Bowlesers of this world, would swing in behind a second referendum, which they just will not. I mean, they've been very explicit, but people don't want to hear that message either. So I think the second referendum promise from Labour may be very politically useful to them to make at this point without necessarily changing the course of history, as it were. Having said that, as Jim has been outlining, there's a lot of things on the move at the moment and it feels quite fluid. And as we know, number 10 is quite capable of doing enormous U-turns if it becomes a political expedient on the day. And this idea of some sort of referendum deal where you back Mrs May's withdrawal agreement in return for a public vote seems to be creeping up the agenda. So I would say that it's not impossible and I don't want to get too far into the weeds for our long-suffering listeners, but uh, there was another split, a very techie split on Monday in terms of what any amendment by Labour would actually consist of. And when you talk to people, it's very clear that Keir Starmer's vision is basically to support the Peter Kyle backbench amendment, whereby you would link support for May's deal to her giving a referendum. But what's coming out of Corbyn's office is that they can't possibly do that because that would require supporting a dreaded Tory Brexit. So the question is, well, what exactly are you going to do? Because it's very clear that they're not going to support any black and white amendment calling for a second referendum. So are they going to kind of try and link it to support for their own deal? I mean, that literally makes no sense and would never get through the Commons. So there are justifiable suspicions about what exactly they've got in mind other than just trying to maintain party unity. 
And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Jim, James and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard, then you can find more FT Journalism on our latest subscription offers, which is www.ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.